Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. Desmond Child is one of the most successful and prolific writers and producers of all time. His songs have resulted in nearly six dozen top 40 singles on Billboard's pop, rock, country, and R&B charts. His band, Desmond Child and Rouge, attracted the attention of Paul Stanley, who partnered with Desmond to write I Was Made for Loving You, which became a major hit for Kiss in 1979. Child first collaborated with John Bon Jovi and Richie Sambora for Bon Jovi's 1986 album, Slippery When Wet. Their partnership resulted in the number one hits You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer. Desmond has appeared as a co-writer on every Bon Jovi album since, co-writing additional hits such as Bad Medicine, Born to Be My Baby, This Ain't a Love Song, and You Want to Make a Memory. He formed a similar alliance with Aerosmith, with whom he wrote the hits Dude Looks Like a Lady, Angel, What It Takes, and Crazy. He co-wrote Joan Jett's I Hate Myself for Loving You and all of the tracks on Alice Cooper's wildly successful Trash LP, including the hit single Poison. Not limited to the rock world, Child began branching out, co-writing pop songs such as Michael Bolton's How Can We Be Lovers, as well as co-writing and producing Just Like Jesse James and We All Sleep Alone for Cher. In the late 1990s, he returned to his Latin roots, joining forces with Ricky Martin and scoring with several singles, including the number one worldwide smash Live in La Vida Loca. Among the many other artists who've recorded his songs are Cyndi Lauper, Megadeth, Rat, Hanson, Robbie Williams, Roxette, Boyzone, Daryl Hall and John Oates, Bonnie Tyler, Hilary Duff, Vince Neil, Lindsay Lohan, The Jonas Brothers, Meatloaf, The Scorpions, Sebastian Bach, NXS, Kelly Clarkson, Joss Stone, and Weezer. He was inducted to the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008 and is the chairman and CEO of the Latin Songwriters Hall of Fame. So Scott, before you actually sat down to talk to him, if I said the name Desmond Child, what would that mean to you? I remember, like, as a kid... Growing up in Nashville, uh, I heard the names of like country songwriters, but I never thought about the fact that like, oh, rock music also might have songwriters that aren't the people who are making the records, you know, but like I knew the name Desmond Child. Right. And I think that was kind of rare because, you know, there was a time when you had like Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Mm. you know, those were names that those guys were songwriters, but like fans knew their names too, you know? And I think like when we were growing up in the eighties, pop culture had kind of lost that thing of celebrating the songwriter in, in rock music and in pop music even really. I mean, they, they just weren't visible figures. You might occasionally hear of, you know, Diane Warren and Desmond Child. And that was, that was kind of it. They loomed really large in the songwriting world to the point that they, were kind of known entities in pop culture, like in a wider sense. Yeah, I guess it wasn't really great for the image of the the rock band, you know, to say, oh, by the way, here's the writer who helped us with this hit song. But when you had Frank Sinatra back in the old days, he would always start a song by introducing the writers. He would right. say, oh, this is a song written by, you know, Hoagie Carmichael or whomever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think in the 80s, when you get into a little bit more of the, the video generation and really focusing on the lead singer and that type of thing, yeah. to say, oh, well, we, we had help on this song. Probably yeah. not not what all those guys really wanted to broadcast. Uh, It kind of fell out of fashion for a while to employ the professional songwriter, which is how 
popular music was made for decades, you know, before the, it sort of began obviously with the Beatles and, you know, into the 1970s, you see that progression before then popular music, it was, you had your songwriters, you had your, your singers that was, they were always pretty separate. And in a way, Desmond Child is sort of like part of that tradition, you know? Yeah. Well, and these songs to me are kind of part of American folk music now. You know, you go to like a karaoke bar, somebody's going to sing Living on a Prayer. Right. You know, these aren't just songs that have kind of been hits and that people know their name from maybe seeing them on a billboard shot or something. Right. I mean, it's pretty cool to sit down and talk to the guy who wrote those songs that were such a big part of our childhood. Yeah, I mean, I I remember getting the Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet tape as a kid. And I mean, man, that was like, undoubtedly, I just played that thing until the tape basically fell apart. And and don't let mom see the title of that album. No. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, did she listen to it? I highly doubt it. But here's the thing. Desmond Child is a songwriter. Yeah. A professional songwriter. The kind of guy that comes in to write a monster hit like Livin' La Vida Loca. Yeah. You know, like the, the kind of guy that you bring in um, to Aerosmith, to Bon Jovi, to Kiss, to Joan Jett, to, to Alice Cooper, uh, iconic artists. And so when we are here talking with songwriters and talking with people who have sort of made that their, their craft, you know, here's a guy who like is a representation of kind of the penultimate yeah. idea of what it means to be a professional songwriter. And, and you know, there, there's a certain intimidation factor. What kind of questions do you even yeah. ask a guy uh, who is so obviously well accomplished in his, in his field? Yeah. And you're talking to a guy that wasn't, you know, he didn't feel nervous walking in with Bon Jovi, walking in with Aerosmith and, you know, basically being told we need hits from you. Yeah. And he walked into that pressure situation and was just fine. Right. And uh, he didn't seem to feel any pressure talking to us either. I don't think. Uh, no, I don't think he was intimidated by us, <laughs> which, uh, you know, was surprising because we're no, very imposing. I did my best. Yeah. Well, let's check it out. Absolutely. Desmond, welcome to Songcraft. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, you spent your very early years in Gainesville, Florida, before moving to Miami with your Cuban-American mother. Um, and Gainesville and Miami are two very different places, musically speaking. You know, the, the latter, of course, is, is largely known for Latin and R&B music, while the former produced uh, rootsy writer-artists such as Tom Petty, Stephen Stills, uh, Don Felder, and Bernie Ledden of the Eagles. Um, now, I know that you left Gainesville very early, but is there anything about that environment that you feel like kind of weaved its way into your musical DNA? Well, when I, when I was little, um, my stepfather at that time, he was kind of a cowboy. And so he would drive around and he would be singing all these Yellow Rose of Texas and yeah. all of these hymns and all this real kind of, um, you know, kind of cowboy music. Right. And so um, I think that had a, a deep impression on me. And my mother was songwriting at home because she's, uh, she's a Cuban poet and she was a Cuban poet and songwriter. Yeah. So she was writing songs in Spanish. Mm. Ever since I was little, I mean, there are pictures of me at her feet while she's composing. Yeah. And so um, I always grew up in music. I didn't know people didn't write or sing songs. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, so that was already, I guess, in my, in my DNA. Right, right. So you're kind of getting a, a couple of different influences from the, from the earliest. So uh, last night on Netflix, I, I watched uh, the documentary about uh, your sons and uh, noticed that 
that one of them is named Nero. And knowing that you're a songwriter, I'm I'm guessing that that name was was likely inspired by singer songwriter uh, Lara Nero. Was she a, a big influence on you as you grew older and began to start thinking about writing some of your own songs? Laura Nero was an influence on me from the time I was 14. I think I was 1967. Right. I had befriended Lisa Wexler, Jerry Wexler's daughter, huh. and she took me over to her house on Miami Beach, and you know, in the other room would be Jerry Wexler, Maurice Martin, Tom Dowd, Ahmed wow. Erdogan, and yeah. I'd be, you know be there at the dinner table. I was you know a tag along kid. Right. <laughs> and um, she played me Laura Nero's uh, first album called uh, More Than a New Discovery on Verve. Mm. Right. And the minute I heard her music, something clicked in me. Wow. My mother was a songwriter, and so maybe hearing a female voice like that singing very confessional songs like really touched me. Right. And so from that minute on, I said, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Wow. And so, of course, I was always drawn to singer-songwriters like Elton John, and that's why I'm called Desmond Child, because my name was John Charles Barrett, and... You know, somehow Elton John sounded cooler, so I found a <laughs> similar sounding name, Desmond wow. Child. Interesting. And so um, that's that's how that happened. And so when I got to New York to go to college, I hired Laura Nero's dad to tune my piano so uh-huh. I could get the latest news <laughs> on her. Yeah. And so finally, 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 in the '90s, when she play, performed in Santa Monica. Um, at a jazz club, I sent back a business card and said, I would love to meet you. Mm. And by the time I got home, there was a message on my answering machine from her. And I turned to Curtis, my husband, and I said, I've waited 25 years for that call. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. Well, one of your first serious musical endeavors was a folk duo called Nightchild which you formed with Deborah Walls in the early 1970s. And that was the time you mentioned that you kind of went through the name change. Um, what kind of songs were you writing in this era? Well, they were kind of Laura Nero, John Lennon influenced songs, because that's yeah. who we were listening to night and day. Yeah. You know? I mean, prior to that period, you know, going to Miami Beach High, which was kind of like 90210, but with better cars and better drugs. <laughs> All right. Um, we were listening to, you know, the, the big rock acts of the time. Right. Yeah. Cream and, you know, Jimi Hendrix. And and so, uh, you know, when we started writing songs, me and Debbie, we were like um, kindred spirits. Mm. And um, we, we just started, you know, writing and singing because we loved the... the said, well, let's call our group Nightchild. We said, okay, well... Okay, why don't you be Virgil Knight and I'll be Desmond Child? And right. Desmond came from Obladi Oblada. Um, oh, right, Desmond right. had a barrel in the marketplace yeah. because remember he would put on makeup and all that. And at that time, I was kind of like, you know, trying to figure out my identity, right? Yeah, my persona. And so, you know, I was I, I had feelings like I was gay, but I said, well, maybe that's just because I'm a rock star. <laughs> um, and so, you know, because I'd heard, you know, David Bowie and Mick Jagger and all those people, they were kind of androgynous, kind yeah. of bisexual rumors and all this kind of stuff. So um, I related to that mm. because I like girls, too. That was what, that's the confusing huh. part. 
Right. You know, I guess I, I fit into the B of the LGBT. <laughs> but, right. you know, in real life, you kind of have to pick one partner, and I'm, I guess I'm stronger in the G department than in the B department. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're just a teenager and, you know, all society is pulling the other way, right. you know, and you do have feelings, you know, so it's, it was very, very confusing. Yeah. So yeah. we took off, and when I quit uh, at the end of 11th grade, and she and I drove up to Woodstock, New York, Oh. It was the year after the festival, so there were a lot of people still hanging around the little town of Woodstock. Right. And we made friends with Van Morrison's band, and that they actually volunteered to do our first demo. Oh, cool. Which wow. then I met this girl, um, Bonnie Leon, who worked for a record company. I think she was working for the, the very beginning of Fire Records right. for um, Seymour Stein. And I got in to see him, to play him our demo. Wow. And um, he, like, took me seriously and played my tape in his office. That wow. was my very first. And that, that was, I was 18. I just turned 18. It was November of 1971. Well, you know, and I know that you eventually formed your band uh, Desmond Child and, and Rouge. Um, and you guys wound up in New York and... and um, released your first album in 1979 and there's a song on that record um, called the fight that you wrote with paul stanley from kiss and, and he seems to have been something of a pivotal figure in your life in terms of moving from writing songs exclusively for your own voice as an artist to you know then collaborating with other artists how did you and and paul first wind up getting together he was a fan of our group huh i didn't know nothing about kiss interesting you know i it just seemed like that was something teeny boppers were, were listening to. I just didn't know anything about it. But he was so nice, and he like you know really befriended me. And he said, "Hey, one you know, I, I he said, why don't you write a song with me? Let's just try writing a song, just you and me." And wow. so we came up with "I Was Made for Loving You." good on the first try, that right? That seems to have worked out. One yeah. of the biggest kiss hits <laughs> of their career. You know, I, then he, then I said, okay, well, you have to write a song on my record. <laughs> right. And so we wrote the, the song The Fight. Yeah. yeah. And so um, that's how that relationship began. Um, well, in the meantime, you, you're having the success with Kiss. You, you know, you've got your own band, Desmond Child and Rouge, and um, you had that single, Our Love is Insane, in 1979. You released two albums for Capitol that year. You played Saturday Night Live. But ultimately, it was kind of a short-lived run at that point, and the band kind of fell apart. Did you lament the breakup of that group, or were you kind of ready after that success with Kiss to sort of reinvent yourself as more of a behind-the-scenes? No, song no, no. I, it was very, very difficult because I had started the band with Maria Vidal, who was my girlfriend, oh. and so we were together four years, you know, as boyfriend girlfriend. Right. Yeah. And right, at, you know, after we made our first record, I met a guy that like. You just turned my world upside down. Then I realized, oh, I'm more gay than than straight. Actually, it was right. like uh, very disruptive. Yeah, yeah. And it was very painful because we had built. I mean, it was Desmond and Maria, Desmond and Maria, Desmond and Maria. Right. We were a couple, and right. we had this little apartment where we would rehearse, and on Sundays we'd have brunches where all the singers and comedians would come. Everybody would try out their new songs and. It was like a, the most wonderful four years 
of my life, the happiest, really. Yeah. And Marie and I just always saw eye to eye and everything. We never argued. Hmm. The only time we ever argued was on a cymbal crash that she didn't want. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had actually a big fight. Well, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only thing we ever fought over was a cymbal crash. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's um, funny. You know, to this day, I mean, she's my soulmate, and, you know, she's married now to producer Rick Knowles. Okay. And they have a grown-up son and all that, and we're still, and she's one of the godmothers of my kids, and yeah. we're very, very close. I understand that, that during the early days of your professional writing career that you had a, a very important collaborator and maybe a bit of a mentor in, in Bob Crew, who was best known for writing hits like Big Girls Don't Cry, Walk Like a Man, Can't Take My Eyes Off You. Well, that's what happened, see. When I left Desmond Child and Rouge, then I went into a mentor, two-year mentorship with Bob Crew. Yeah. Because I had, the, one of the reasons I left Desmond Child and Rouge was because I had and met John Landau, who managed Bruce Springsteen. Remember, right. Bruce Springsteen was the king. Yeah. And I would go and go and play him my songs, and I'd go every week. And he said to me, said, of all the people I've seen, you're probably the only person other than Bruce that I would ever consider managing. Wow. And I said, well, will you manage me? And he says, well, okay, um, let me just get through this record. Uh, I think it was, you know, Darkness on the Edge of Town or something. And then another record came, and then I was like waiting and waiting. And then, you know, it's like I got tired of waiting, you know. And, uh, you know, he was very discouraging on Dozen Chandler. He thought it was corny. Hmm. He thought, you know, it was like Tony Orlando and Don. He didn't <laughs> get, you know, like what the, you know, what then became cool things like Scissor Sisters or, yeah. you know, Culture Club or, you know, that's where more where we lived. Right, right. And those things came later. And um, we, I didn't have enough um, inner strength to to see that what I had actually had value. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's taken me my whole life, you know. And and it's taken me. I'm going to be 62 this year, and it's like it's taken me a lifetime to, you know. I've always been forward looking. It's like any hits in the past to me, they were like things that weren't hits anymore. Mm, right. You know. Yeah. The minute it fell off of number one, it's like. Right. It's a next? loser. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, it's like yeah. I want shit to pin at number one and just stay there forever. <laughs> you know, right. Right. that's it's a kind of ch childish thought, but <laughs> you know, it's like nothing has value unless right. it was at the top. Yeah. Right. So right. I would fight and fight and fight and work hard, really hard to get back to the top again. Yeah. And so yeah. now I'm looking back because I've been kind of putting my catalogs together and all that. It's like, man, did I work? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, incredible. I so fucking hard. Yeah. yeah. And I look at the, you know, the, the early 80s and, and you're starting to have these cuts as a songwriter with people like Billy Squire and, and Cher and Clarence Clemens. And you're, you're getting into producing. You're you're having uh, songs recorded by by Kiss again, uh, Bonnie Tyler. Um, so there, there's sort of all these things happening. And, and then you have kind of the the big moment that that leads up to your first number one hit which was you give love a bad name by bon jovi
Um, talk about how you first began collaborating with with John and with Richie Sambora and and what that process uh, is like of just kind of getting to know an artist's voice and getting together to write with them for the first time and just kind of figure out, you know, how we're going to work together, so to speak. Well, Paul Stanley was the connecting, you know, degree because, you know, the six degrees of separation. Right. Um, they had opened for Kiss. Bon Jovi had uh, at a European tour, and Paul and John became friendly. And um, they had written a song on their previous album, and it was called In and Out of Love. And it, if you listen to it, it's like so influenced by Heaven's on Fire. Right. You know, and um, so they had, they had known my name, and so I think they got the talk in, and, and Paul said, hey, you should write with Desmond. And mm. so I think that, I mean, John says it differently than Richie or, you know, it's like they, they both have different stories and right. I had a completely different story, <laughs> but I think initially their manager, Doc McGee had said, like, you guys should write songs for other people, mm-hmm. you know, because you guys don't need collaborators, but they didn't say that to me. Right. So the idea was we'd come up with some hit songs and get them out there to make extra cash for them. Interesting. Right. But yeah. the first day we got together, we wrote You Give Love a Bad Name. That's right. not a bad first day. And I had the title, and uh, Shot Through the Heart was the title on that previous album as well. Right. Huh. And so, you know, John's never one to let anything go to waste. <laughs> and so, he, you know, it just all came together in this little house in New Jersey, which was Richie Sambora's parents' house, yeah. where he lived on the edge of a marsh. And you look down, and the water was like, oil you know it was like the most polluted place ever (laughs) that's inspiring and i walked into uh that little house and and then on the left was a little bedroom that was his bedroom on the ground floor and there was i'll never forget there was a kiss poster and the and a farrah fawcett and the red bathing suit poster on the wall (laughs) the classic yeah and his messy little bed a little single bed and they brought me down to this basement that was like a laundry basement with washer dryer and all this (laughs) and there was some it was kind of chilly or whatever. There was a space heater rattling. Right. And I waited for a while, and Richie was kind of talking to me and stuff. And then finally John came down, and he, he was very skeptical, you know. Mm. First of all, he didn't, you know, I don't think he liked me, right. you know, because I seemed gay. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think at that time he wasn't quite the, humanitarian philanthropist he is today <laughs> with the big open heart. I mean, he's actually the godfather of my kids, yeah. you know. Uh, and so it, I didn't fit the picture, you know. Right. I was, you know, dressed very conservatively. I had short hair, I had a little beard, right. and, you know. It was not, I didn't look cool. And so, you know, it was magic, though. I had this song previous called If You Were a Woman and I Was a Man Bonnie that I Tyler, written yeah. for Bonnie Tyler. Yeah. And it basically is You Give Love a Bad Name. Right, right. <laughs> the intro and the chorus, I, I noticed the similarities Yeah, there. so it starts off with, you know, the same thing. If you were a In that song, I had used sort of like a Eurythmics, These Dreams, uh, and Billie Jean kind of bass line. Right. You know, 
And so I told Richie to play a similar line. You know, dun 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 dun. You know, I was playing on the keyboard, and they go, "Man, that's just so Michael Jackson." You know, right? And it's like that's like not our style. Yeah. I said, "Well, play it on guitar and do it like really tight, like chugs." And he started. He started playing it. And like the whole thing took off. Wow. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And and that album took off. Well, I mean, Living on a Prayer was number one and, and huge everywhere on every planet. that the version on the album is actually the second version that the band recorded. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that song came together and the incarnations it went through to arrive at that hit version that we all know today. Well, they had made a demo with the band, but like when it came to the modulation at the end, there was a big drum solo into it. Huh. And I said, no, that sounds like Barry Manilow or something. That's just <laughs> not cool. And so I said, just cut out that measure. So just fucking do it. Right. And um, they just did it with a with a uh, razor, and they just <laughs> right. cut it, and just like wow. it just totally worked. You live for the time, no legend, oh, yep. yeah, and just yeah. went right. It just launched that song into the modulation. It didn't sound corny. Yeah, wow. totally worked. Well, you mentioned that you guys were kind of, uh, I guess their management was strategically wanting them to write um, with, with other artists, uh, you know, for other artists. And in 1987, uh, you guys um, collaborated on uh, We All Sleep Alone, which was a big hit for Cher and, and on kind of uh, yeah, a comeback. Yeah, but we wrote that her. song for Slippery and it didn't make it. Interesting. So I just, I just played her the demo of that and then I got Bon Jovi to... Uh, to, to come in and be the band on it. You got to be strong when you're out of your own. Cause sooner or later, we all sleep alone. And that's actually when Richie got to meet Cher and stuff. So, right, yeah. Like, and and that all worked out you know and you also produced about half of that share album as a songwriter do you prefer to produce the artists that you're writing for and with or do you kind of like hearing how other producers interpret your work it depends on how great the producer is Uh, Bruce Fairburn was like amazing he was a better producer than me Hmm. so hello (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) he did all the Aerosmith ones too but you know I did start to put my foot down and say, you know, I want to produce, but I always just got the weirdos because no band wanted to be under, you know, didn't want to get dick-lashed by a gay dude <laughs> telling them what to do. They'd be willing to be equals in a room songwriting, but the producer's always the boss. Wow. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of those hard rock bands, you know, like like Kiss, like Bon Jovi, it, the thing that is so unique of what you brought to, to a lot of these groups is that um, kind of radio-friendly pop accessibility, which helped them become bigger groups for for a radio audience. And of course, Aerosmith, uh, another uh, example of that. You you collaborated with those guys for the first time on their what was kind of their comeback album, Permanent Vacation, um, on songs like yeah, uh, they Dude had Looks done Like a, a Lady. Yeah, one called Done with Mirror 
Pirates that didn't work out. Yeah, yeah, the, not the one that was intended to be their comeback, but the one that was, I guess. And uh, but and I'm curious to to hear about, um, you know, a, a song like "Dude Looks Like a Lady." Talk about that that initial meeting and how you guys wound up creating a hit that was pretty boundary pushing in terms of subject matter for for pop radio. It's funny because um, Steven Tyler wrote in his book, you know, like a whole like couple pages on the writing of the, of that song. Right. And he like had it left completely wrong. <laughs> and then Joe Perry tells a different tale where he gives me credit for coming up with the title, which I didn't. Hmm. You know, when I walked in there, they were they they had the loop, but they were singing "Cruising for the Ladies." Huh. Wow. And um, you know, I. The first thing out of my mouth, and this is the first day I worked with them, and, you know, I was forced on them by the AR guy, John Claudner, hmm. who's the one that put me into the share, right, from right. guessing. And so uh, they didn't want it. They'd never collaborated with the outside writer and all that. Yeah. And um, so I said, well, that title, I mean, that hook, I mean, that's so boring. Cruising <laughs> for the ladies. For the ladies so I was yeah. like... I don't think even Van Halen would put that on a B-side, <laughs> you know, that, that concept. Like, right. you know, cruising down, you know, Sunset Boulevard, top down, and a <laughs> right. red Corvette, you know, like, right. you know, like, what? Cruising for the ladies? No. <laughs> and so they were like, they, no one ever talked to them like that. Right. And then kind of Stephen sort of sheepishly said, well, when I first came up with that hook, I was singing Dude Looks Like a Lady. And I said, what? Dude looks like a lady. I said, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And then Joe said, well, well, boo, we don't know what that means. I said, <laughs> okay, I know what that means. Yeah. Dude looks like a lady. And then Joe said, we don't want to insult the gay community. I mm. said, dude, I'm gay. It wouldn't be insulting <laughs> right. to sing about a, a transgendered, you know, stripper. Right. right. And this whole story came out. That all happened because they had gone to a bar and seen uh, this gorgeous blonde at the end of the bar, you know, a big, you know, mullet, giant mullet, uh, right. platinum blonde hair. That, and, and they said, oh, my God, and with beautiful, you know, butt and body and all this kind of stuff. And then turns around, it's Vince Neil of Motley Crue. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's when they started making the joke. Right. Oh wow. my God, that dude looks like a lady. Dude <laughs> looks like a lady. Dude looks like a... That's where it was born. Wow. So then Joe and his thing writes that I came up with the title. It's like, you know, you know, it's like, <laughs> you guys have done too many drugs, okay? <laughs> that's not how I am. Now, right. you know, world, who are you going to believe? Those two or me? <laughs> right. <laughs> the guy who didn't do all the drugs. I'm telling it like it is. <laughs> right. So there you have it. That song was a huge hit, and then you know Angel was a huge hit coming up after it. Um, but I want to ask you about a song that wasn't a big hit for you, but it seems to have cropped up several times in your career, and that song is Love on a Rooftop. 
Um, that was an album cut for Ronnie Spector in 1987. But it was later recorded by Cher. I, I cut it with Bonnie Tyler too, right? Yeah, and you, it was also on your, your solo record as well, so it seems like it's and kind of And I cut of a... it with Robin Beck too. Wow. 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 Is, is that a particularly special song for you? Love on a Rooftop, I co-wrote with... with um, um, I think Diane Warren maybe, right? Yes. Yeah. With Diane Warren. But previous to that, I had a writing session with Paul Stanley, and we were coming up with titles, and one of the titles that he had come up with was Rooftop Love or something like that. Yeah. So, so I had forgotten about that, and I was thinking of Up on the Roof, right? That song right. by Carol King. Right. So Love on a Rooftop, and so Diane and I wrote it, and then I talked to Paul and I said, oh my God, this is Diane Warren, you should write with her. She's most amazing, like we just wrote this fantastic song called Love on a Rooftop. And there was like silence. <laughs> and he said, that's my title. It's like, what? And I went, oh my God, right, rooftop love. Uh, you Oops. know. <laughs> uh, so that's then funny. we ended up, you know, he didn't get credit, but we ended up giving him a piece of the song oh, for the title. Oh, well. Well, that you know, 1987, uh, when that that Ronnie Spector album cut of Rooftop uh, Love on a Rooftop rather came out, uh, that was a giant year for you. 1988 proved to be just as huge, if, if not bigger. You had three songs on Kiss's Crazy Nights album, including the single Reason to Live. You had four songs on Bon Jovi's insanely popular New Jersey album, including Bad Medicine and Born to Be My Baby. Uh, and then you had three songs on Joan Jett's Up Your Alley record, including the successful singles Little Liar and, of course, I, I Hate Myself for Loving You. That's another one of those songs that wasn't just a, a hit, but has actually become a, a classic. Talk about working with, with Joan and, and how that song came together. Well, I got a call from Kenny Laguna because, you know, Joan hadn't had a, a pop hit in a long time since I Love Rock and Roll, which was eight years before. Right. And because, you know, these some of these songs were ones that they actually liked. Yeah. You know, because they're real purists, you know, especially Joan. Oh, my God. She's wow. just the most... I mean, she's the most uncompromising, not in terms of working, but in terms of going against her principles, right, you know, right, her musical sure. world. It's very, very strict. Right. And, um, you know, so Kenny put us together, and the very first day we got together, we, we wrote, um, I Hate Myself for Loving You. Wow. And, um, you know, I have the writing tape. It's so cute. Wow. Hearing her sing that for the first time. Right. And um, she didn't want to sing a song that had the word love in it hmm. because, you know, she, you know, she didn't write I Love Rock and Roll. Right. And she just thought it was corny to say the word love. Uh -huh. So it took a lot convincing her to sing a word, another title with the word love in it. I hate myself for loving you. Right. I said, yeah, but it has the word hate in it that balances it out. <laughs> right. And she was like, uh, well, you know, she wasn't all that in favor of it. Yeah. But Kenny freaked out, and uh, we went, and I produced it, and um, it was magical. Wow. It, yeah, it continued when Alice Cooper's Trash album was released in 1989. You, you produced that record. You co-wrote every song on the record, including Poison, which was a big top ten single.
You know, Alice... Up at that point, Alice hadn't had a big hit in more than a decade before then. Well, and, you know, Aerosmith the previous hadn't had album a big... to the one I produced sold 15,000 copies. <laughs> Jeez. Jeez. And then uh, my album sold four and a half million or something. Right. And then they, they, they didn't rehire me to make the next record. Wow. Right. I don't know what I did so wrong. You sold too many records, man. <laughs> no, they couldn't print them fast enough. Yeah, with with Alice Cooper and Aerosmith and, and even Cher kind of having these sort of comeback albums with you, did you think that you were kind of building a reputation as the guy to go to when, when you need a hit? You haven't had a hit in a while called Desmond Child. He'll, he'll put one together. Well, they started calling me the, you know, song doctor and all this <laughs> kind of stuff. Right. Which was not very unfair because I was writing these songs from scratch, exactly, not right. fixing their songs. Yeah, you know, and so it's you know, and then it was bad because it would make them look weak, hmm. made me look bad, like I wasn't really an artist, and then made them look bad right. because it's like they they were so crippled they needed help. Right, right, yeah, you know, not and anyone. so the thing for me is I'm really good at writing for characters. Hmm. And even in Desmond Chandler Rouge, I had it was easier for me to write for Desmond Chandler Rouge, even though it says Desmond Child and Rouge, right? Yeah, I I could barely write songs for myself. Yeah, huh. I just couldn't turn the camera back towards me. Interesting. You yeah. know, the the character I was playing in Desmond Chandler Rouge was like I was inventing. Right, right. You know, and 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 the same thing goes like Kiss characters. Right. You know, Bon Jovi, he, you know, he was a character to me. Yeah. He was like, you know, the every, the boy next door, that, you know, he's like a hero. And then yeah. I, all the songs were triumphant. And, you know, Alice Cooper, he was the embodiment of our dark side. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's very clear that Vincent Fournier is, is, you know, the person. Right. And Alice is a character. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, in addition to Alice, uh, you know, one of the people we've mentioned already a couple times that, that you had great success with, especially in terms of kind of reinvigorating the, the career, um, was Cher. And uh, in 1989, um, Cher put out the Heart of Stone album. Once again, you, you produced several songs and you were a writer on it, at least four of the songs, including the top 10 hit, just like Jesse James, um, which is a song you wrote with, with Diane Warren. Um, but there's another song. We um, wrote that for Bonnie Tyler. Oh, really? <laughs> for her record. Yeah. You know, that was one of the funnest, best records I ever made. Bonnie yeah. Tyler's wow. record, Hide Your Heart. Yeah, yeah. But she wouldn't sing it because she was embarrassed that her mom would think she was being fresh. Interesting. Oh, wow. <laughs> There's another song on, on that uh, Cher's Heart of Stone album called uh, Emotional Fire, which which you wrote with Diane and, and Michael Bolton. And you had, had actually written a song with Michael uh, called Working Girl on the previous Cher album. But uh, obviously your biggest success with him came with the top five hit, How Can We Be Lovers? How can Bolton is one of those guys who was so huge then, and today he kind of gets a, a bad rap. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on, you know, Michael Bolton, the songwriter. Well, yeah, I started writing with him before he had made that big soul provider. Soul provider. Yeah. I'm not sure which one it was, but um, yeah, I mean, he was a, 
a kind of a rocker dude. Yo, right. yeah, he had that band Blackjack before. Yeah, Blackjack, and he was like a rocker dude, and then it was sort of like he decided that he was going to do stuff with a more R&B flavor. Yeah. You know, because he started finding his vo- his like voice, you know, and the, the kind of yearning that is in his voice. Yeah, right. And so he's very um, collaborative and very involved and very, you know, strong about his opinions in the songwriting process. Hmm. You know, and so I always had a lot of fun writing with him and Diane. Right. I mean, when I could get them to stop laughing and <laughs> doing part of this and stuff. Right, right. You know, I, I, I adore him. I think he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, yeah. and, and a, a deep low bow to Michael Bolt because yeah. of, you know, yeah. everything that he did. I mean, he defined a whole generation. So my personal, one of my personal favorite uh, Desmond Child songs is the song um, What It Takes, which uh, was a top 10 hit for Aerosmith in 1989. And, you know, I know Steven Tyler is is doing the Nashville thing now. He's, he's released a country single. And he's got a country album in the works. Um, and that kind of surprised people to like, oh, Steven Tyler doing the Nashville thing. But to me, uh, tell me what it takes or what it takes. Um, that's that's a song that I always thought was kind of begging to be covered by a country artist and it's one of my favorite of your songs it's one of my favorite Aerosmith's records precisely because it's kind of uh, different for them little bit about how that came together that uh, we wrote that at joe's house in his basement uh, studio and um steven was actually playing drums while we were writing that song huh. and he had a helmet on with a <laughs> microphone right wow. and so he could hear you know he was hearing us we were mic and uh, all that through his headphones so he it was like a, hel- a football helmet you know on his head and he's playing drums and I was on piano, Joe was on guitar, and we started just jamming, and it was like a 20-minute, half-hour, constantly moving target, right. nothing wow. ever repeating kind of meditation. <laughs> right. And so then uh, he went to the Joe and he took a break, and I sat there with the um, with the engineer and cut together sections. Huh. That I and repeated sections and kind of created a, a song out of all of these. I mean, the whole thing is like Stephen would just keep singing and singing all these incredible things. Right. And so um, my whole thing, and that's why the song, in a way, kind of meanders key wise and you hmm. know goes right. from section to section yeah. in a very kind of fresh way. Right. Right. And that's how we made that song. Do you hear country, uh, kind of a country influence in that song? No. I hear a country really? inference in Angel. Think about this. 
how much is country music influenced by Aerosmith? Right, oh, today. totally. Yeah. Well, I know that you kind of began branching out into Nashville, um, you know, in the early 90s, and you, you scored some top 40 singles, including Heart Half Empty by Ty Herndon and Stephanie Bentley in, in 1995, and Hole in My Heart by Blackhawk in 1997. And, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think your writing style kind of fits that Nashville approach because your your lyrics tend to be um, fairly direct. There's often kind of this working class quality to the characters in your songs. Um, but talk about kind of that experience of having been this, you know, hugely successful pop songwriter and, and writing all these songs that kind of influenced uh, what Nashville is now and then going to Nashville and kind of navigating your way into that fairly unique Nashville songwriter community. Well, yeah, you know, I got there in 91, so that was before everybody decided Nashville was cool. <laughs> right. And um, I remember that Nirvana had hit, mm. and it suddenly all the bands that I was working with, it was like their era was over. Yeah, right. And these new songs, you know, the whole Seattle thing and all that, it's like I wasn't relating to it. Now listening back to that stuff, it's like... Uh, not that different, right, <laughs> but right. whatever. Uh, I was told that I was washed up. I was 35 years old, and I was told, dude, you don't wear, you don't have, like, uh, piercing through your tongue, and you don't have, like, <laughs> green hair, and you don't have, yeah. like, you're not wearing a plaid skirt and, and, and army boots, right. you know, <laughs> and you don't have tattoos, so you're not cool anymore. Right. Wow. And, and my own manager at the time, was like telling me, you know, I think you're, you know, because he was uh, managing a very popular producer of that um, of that era, and in up in Seattle and whatnot. It's like, uh, well, I think you know, your your like, like your, your career as a producer is over. Wow! Jeez. And Jeez. it was like, oh, really? So that's when I decided to do my solo thing, and then I went to Miami and then discovered Ricky Martin, and then I guess like producing career wasn't over yeah Yeah, it sounds like it (laughs) Uh, but at at the same time it seemed like when i heard garth brooks it was like okay this is bon jovi with the twang right yeah so i can write this i know this right so that's when i I mean my first song i wrote there was with victoria shaw called where your road leads Hmm. and that's Mm -hmm. the song that brought trisha yearwood and garth brooks together That was in 92, right? and um, I kept going back because um, I was signed to EMI at the time, and Celia Froelich, who was the head of the EMI office, ran that place like it was, she was like the mom. Hmm. And I started going there. She took me under her wing. And so then, you know, eventually my husband and I realized that we had closer friends there through the years than anywhere else. Wow. And that the people we met were so warm, and we thought it was the best environment to raise our sons. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, believe it or not, we don't live in a mega mansion. Huh. We live in, like, what it's like, it looks like a barn kind of thing. So oh, there's nice. one room that's, like, 
we live in a two-room shack. One room is the master bedroom, and then there's another room, which is our living room and kitchen and everything, and one of the boys sleeps in the loft above the kitchen. Wow. And then the other boy sleeps in what used to be Curtis's little office. So for <laughs> nice. five years, we've been living in a two-room shack <laughs> on awesome. eight acres, and we, 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 we call it Broke Backrack Mountain. <laughs> that's that's great. Or gay acres. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, you you mentioned Ricky Martin a moment ago, and as the as the '90s came to a close, I mean, you had incredible success with with Living La Vida Loca. That song is largely credited with ushering in a Latin pop explosion. And and one of the other things that it was kind of remarkable for, and you know, we the Pro Tools recording software is ubiquitous today, but I understand this was one of the first hit records to really utilize that technology. It, uh, Living La Vida Loca was the first song to be completely done in the box, with wow. no analog huh. elements. Wow. Um, everything was recorded right into it and mixed right on it. Wow. And these little mixing, I forget what they were, these tiny, you know, we had, it was just, we mixed the whole record there, and um, it's the first record to be completely done in the box to reach number one. I mean, that's wow. groundbreaking. And that was, uh, announced in the Wall Street Journal. Wow. wow. It was, you know, so I had just determined, and I had brought my friend Mark Bright there um, and uh, showed him Pro Tools. They said, well, this will never take off in Nashville. No <laughs> way. Within one year, all the 24-track machines were out in the, in the hallway. Right. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They stacked up like they were like on their way to, you know, the slaughterhouse. Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> right. they were not used yeah. in Nashville from day to night. It all went Pro Tools. Just changed, yeah, Jeez. yeah. It's incredible. And after living La Vida Loca, I mean, you guys had much more success together with Shake Your Bon Bon, Cup of Life, and She Bangs. Uh, you know, and I know that you were working with Ricky for a while before he broke through. What was it about him that kind of made you realize that he was going to be important? I had seen a video of a, of a concert he did on the streets of of Buenos Aires in Argentina where half a million people showed up. Good Lord. Wow. And they closed, they closed down the city Man. to see him on the street, on an outdoor stage. That sounds like somebody you probably want to work with. <laughs> wow. And they had a helicopter shot that, like, oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> I've got to work with him. Yeah. yeah exactly. And I had, I, have, uh, I had, you know, two friends, uh, Richard J. Alexander and Debbie Ohanian, and Debbie had seen him on TV and got and brought him to the attention of Richard, who put him in Les Mis on Broadway. And then my my uh, manager's wife, Colleen, um, had seen him in General Hospital, and it seemed like everywhere I turned, people were saying Ricky Martin. Yeah. So um, we got in touch with his A and R person, Joanna Ifra, at uh, I think we were at Columbia Records, right? Yeah. And uh, so we started, and one of the first things we did was write the woke theme for the 1998. Um, it was me and, and Draco Rosa. Mm. Uh, we wrote the Cup of Life, 
which then, thank God, you know, France won. It was in Paris. And then that song became instantly number one in 23 countries. Yeah, huge international hit. And so, and so then the manager came to me and said, hey, do one in Spanglish. And, you know, it took me three days to crack the code lyrically. Uh, but I did, and uh, me and Robbie knocked knocked out Living La Vida Loca. Wow. And, uh, you know, Robbie brought this kind of swing thing, because remember, Sinatra had passed away that year, so we were listening to a lot of Sinatra oh, right. everywhere yeah. we went. So it oh. had a rat pack kind of, you know, she's yeah. in, superstition. Yeah. You know, it had a kind of rat pack swing. Yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, when then I, you know, brought into into gear the all that I had learned with Bon Jovi and Kiss wow. and made a uh, anthemic, you know, stadium like course. Right, right. And we did that with the Cup of Life as well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it worked. One of the one of the songs that, that I gotta ask you about because it, it just sort of uh sticks out to me is not not quite seeming like what I would expect from the general trajectory of the, the Desmond Child catalog. And that's the uh the Thong song, which was a huge pop and R and B hit in, in two thousand. So uh wh- how did that come about? I, I wasn't involved with that, you know, what what it was was that the dude put Living La Vida Loca into the song. Ah, and so then it was like the sample. Yeah. You can't just use somebody's song in your song without right. giving credit. Yeah, yeah. So they they quickly settled and put right. our our names on the song. And that's why it doesn't. Uh, that's why it's, it's one of those glaring things. I'm like, that doesn't seem like a Desmond Child song. <laughs> right, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was kind of like a chance thing. But it was funny because I went to do a speaking engagement at Notre Dame, and um, they made a poster of my you know my coming to the campus. Right. Yeah. And and it had a big picture of me, and it said, the writer of the song song. <laughs> not living on a prayer. Right. Right. Not, n- not anything else. Right. The writer of the song song. Wow. That's a big poster, the song song. That's it's hilarious. Like, are you kidding me? That's what's going to get the kids to come? Right. <laughs> like, that's, that's not what I want on my tombstone, yeah, totally. by the way. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, you were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2008 and, and later joined the, the board of directors. And um, I've heard that there are talks to, to launch like a physical museum in the Brill Building in, in Manhattan. And I'm wondering, um, as someone who has really established yourself as um, an advocate and a spokesperson for the songwriting profession, um, what kind of uh, impact do you hope that that might have in educating the public about songwriting in the future? And, and, and a better way of maybe asking that is, what do you want future generations to understand about the career of songwriting and why it's important? Well, I'm on the committee, the, what they call the Museum Committee of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Right. And um, I had walked past the Brill Building and saw the Colony Records had closed. And I thought, oh my God, what a perfect place for the Songwriters Hall of Fame Museum to be. Right. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I, I've been putting this together for a few years now. And um, it's going to be called the Songwriters Hall of Fame Experience. Cool. And when you walk into the lobby of the Brill Building, they've uh, given us a 32-foot granite wall where all the names of all the inductees since the beginning are going to be carved in stone. Nice. Including my name. Of course. (laughs) Of course. And so 
what better place for the Songwriters Hall of Fame yeah. uh, experience to be than in the Brooklyn building sure. yeah, in great. New York City, in Times Square, a place where one million pedestrians walk every day awesome. in that 10-block area. Killer. It's no joke. Yeah. And so I think it'll be very successful, and it's going to take us a couple of years more to, you know, finally open the doors, but, you know, we still have to raise $30 million. Wow. Yeah, what right. what what's $30 million? <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. We want the future generations, whether they be, become songwriters or not, to understand that what you create belongs to you. Huh. Mm. If you make a drawing, have your kid sign it. Cool. And it's like his work of art. Yeah. You know, if you do a song, it's yours. Mm. Right. It's it's not for free. Right, right. You know, it belongs to you. You can buy it. You can, you, you know, you can sell it. Yeah. You can rent it. You can lease it. It's your property. Right. And, you know, unless we have that as a basis, we're not going to be able to do this for a living. Right. Mm, It'll just yeah. be hobby work. Right. Yeah. And nobody's going to be able to get really good at it. Yeah. yeah. For, for a band, they have to be able to tour. Mm -hmm. if, if, if they're not making any money with their songs, they don't have the money to tour. They right. can't get good as a performer. Right. They're not going to become great artists. So money has to come into this in order for us to give back to the world something of value. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, it goes both ways. Yep. Yeah. And, and they already gutted the schools of the arts starting back in the Clinton days and continued and continued and continues. Yeah, yeah. Our values are in our music. Yeah. We believe in our values of democracy, of freedom, of expression. Those values get transferred to other cultures. That's right. And help to open up their worlds. Wow. Remember, you know, in a lot of third world countries, it's not like here. Right. That's they right. live in very repressed societies that didn't go through the 60s. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's why, you know, there has to be a Songwriters Hall of Fame experience where people can physically go and have a real, you know, sensual contact, cellular contact with why music is important. Yeah, well said. Well, you know, you've, you've created so much music that has benefited our country and the world and, and really become part of the folk music. And um, so we, we thank you for the years of music and for spending some time with us today, man. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.